0: Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. In March 1989, Tim Berners-Lee made his first proposal of the idea that would become the World Wide Web. Here's the man himself.
1: Today, 30 years on from my original proposal for an information management system, half the world is online. It's a moment to celebrate how far we've come, but also an opportunity to reflect on how far we have yet to go. The web has become a public square, a library, a doctor's office, a shop, a school, a design studio, an office, a cinema, a bank, and so much more. Of course, with every new feature, every new website, the divide between those who are online and those who are not increases, making it all the more imperative to make the web available for everyone. And while the web has created opportunity, given marginalized groups a voice and made our daily lives easier, it has also created opportunity for abuse, given a voice to those who spread hatred, and made all kinds of crime easier to commit. Against a backdrop of news stories about how the web is misused, it's understandable that many people feel afraid and unsure if the web is really a force for good. But given how the web has changed in the last 30 years, it would be defeatist and unimaginative to assume that the web as we know it can't be changed for the better in the next 30 years. If we give up on building a better web now, then the web will not have failed us. We will have failed the web. To tackle any problem, we must clearly outline and understand it. I broadly see three sources of dysfunction affecting today's web. Firstly, deliberate malicious intent, such as state-sponsored hacking and attacks, criminal behavior, and online harassment. Secondly, system design that creates perverse incentives where user value is sacrificed, such as ad-based revenue models that commercially reward clickbait and the viral spread of misinformation. Thirdly, there are the unintended negative consequences of benevolent design, such as the outraged and polarized tone and quality of online discourse. While the first category is impossible to eradicate completely, we can create both laws and code to minimize this behavior, just as we've always done offline. The second category requires us to redesign systems in a way to change incentives. And the final category calls for research to understand existing systems and model possible new ones and find out ways to tweak the ones we already have. You can't just blame one government, one social network, or the human spirit en masse. Simplistic narratives risk exhausting our energy as we chase the symptoms of these problems instead of focusing on their root causes. To get this right, we will need to come together as a global community. At pivotal moments, generations before us have stepped up to work together for a better future. With the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, diverse groups of people have been able to agree on essential principles. With the Law of the Sea and the Outer Space Treaty. Now, too, as the web reshapes our world, we have a responsibility to make sure it is recognized as a human right and built for the public good. That is why the Web Foundation is working with governments, companies, and citizens to build a new contract for the web. The contract was launched at Lisbon at the Web Summit, bringing together a group of people who agree we need to establish clear norms, laws, and standards to underpin the web. Those who support it endorse its starting principles and together are working out the specific commitments in each area. No one group should do this alone, and all input will be appreciated. Governments, companies, and citizens are all contributing, and we aim to have a result later this year. Governments must translate laws and regulations for the digital age. They must ensure markets remain competitive, innovative, and open, and they have a responsibility to protect people's rights and freedoms online. We need open web champions within government, civil servants and elected officials who will take action when private sector interests threaten the public good and who will stand up to protect the open web. Companies must do more to ensure their pursuit of long-term profit is not at the expense of human rights, democracy, scientific facts or public safety. Platforms and products must be designed with privacy, diversity and security in mind. This year, We've seen a number of tech employees stand up and demand better business practice from their employers. We need to congratulate them and encourage more of that. And most important of all, citizens must hold companies and governments accountable for the commitments that they make and demand that both respect the web as a global community with citizens at its heart. If we don't elect Politicians who defend a pre- and open web, if we don't do our part to foster constructive, healthy conversations online, if we continue to click consent without demanding our data rights be respected, we walk away from our responsibility to put these issues on the priority agenda of our governments. The fight for the web is one of the most important causes of our time. Today, half the world is online. It is more urgent than ever to ensure that the other half are not left behind offline and that everyone contributes to a web that drives equality, opportunity, and creativity. The contract for the web must not be a list of quick fixes, but a process that signals a shift in how we understand our relationship with our online community. It must be clear enough to act as a guiding star for the way forward, but flexible enough to be able to adapt to the rapid pace of change in technology. It's our journey from digital adolescence to a more mature, responsible, and inclusive future. The web is for everyone, and collectively, we hold the power to change it. It won't be easy, but if we dream a little and work a lot, we can get the web we want.
0: We all know that Tim Berners-Lee invented the web at CERN 30 years ago, but I wanted to know how that invention came to be. Today, walking through the data centre at CERN, it's a sea of computers and servers, and, as you can hear, fans to keep it cool enough for everything to run smoothly. In fact, pretty much every room you go into at CERN these days has at least one computer fan whirring away, and it's hard to imagine those days in the late 1980s with dumb computer terminals, and a mess of protocols and computer compatibility, making networking difficult to say the least. Peggy Remo was Tim Berners-Lee's boss, and had come to CERN in the 1960s to work on pion physics, long before the Large Hadron Collider, or even its forerunner, LEP, the Large Electron-Positron Collider. In the 1980s, LEP came online, and with it came more scientists, more engineers, and more computers. Networking those computers was part of what Tim Berners-Lee was doing at CERN, and it doubtless helped to spark the idea for the web. Here's Peggy Rimmer.
2: Now, I don't know if you know Tim, but he's rather,
0: how could I put it,
2: excited about things, which is excellent. But it's rather, it's not instantly obvious what he's talking about. And of course we had lots of conferences to go to, meetings, preparation meetings for LEP, so there's plenty of buzzing going on. And uh, some from Tim. And the further away he got from our strict applications to the actual experiments, the less we could really admit what he was doing, if you like. Let's put it no stronger than that. And um, anyway, so he was fizzing around with all of this and um, gave several Presentations at our section meeting and so on, and we were not sure what he was up to. But anyway, eventually he wrote this proposal in, in the spring of 89. Now, at that time, LEP was going to turn on in the autumn. The whole We had a new director general who was about to completely reorganise the entire lab, well, at least a bit of it. So the whole computing sector was about to be taken apart and put back together in a, in a format that we were not quite sure about. So we were all quite distracted and also our group leader, Mike Sendler, uh Mike had some quite serious personal problems. And so th- Tim's note, not surprisingly, uh, got rather down the pile. I mean, it wasn't top of our list. I don't know whether... I was thinking, what, how can... People don't realise, if, if the web doesn't exist and you've just got this tremendous chaos around the world of networks and email systems and computer operating system and then another, when Tim comes up with this stream of consciousness about how it could be like this, and it could be a document and I could be you and you could be there and he could be here it doesn't spring to mind that this is the solution to all of your problems and in fact I was trying to think how could you how could you explain how if you don't know what it's going to be, you don't get excited about it, I don't know whether you've ever heard, if you haven't listened to it, they the thing by Bob Newhart, an American co- comedian, I
0: know.
2: who had a he did a sketch on Walter Raleigh in America, ringing up his agent in in London, saying I've got some fantastic stuff for you, really really fantastic, and the guy said Yeah, what is it? He said Well, it's all these dried leaves. And he said, "I want to ship them over." I said, "Well, hang on, board. I mean, you're there for some other reason." Said, no, no, no. it can be amazing. And he goes on and he describes how you chop them all up into bits and then you stuff them in paper tubes and then and then you stick them in your mouth. And the chap said, "Wait a minute. It just calm down." You know. And it was like that. I mean, yeah. the Tim, the, it all the elements were there, but it just seemed so inconsequential. I and mean, we were busy. You know, we're busy, busy, busy.
0: One way to picture the internet and the web is that the internet is the infrastructure over which the web sits. Somewhere else in the same building, where Tim Berners-Lee eventually began making the web, was François Flukiger.
3: I joined CERN uh, 35 years ago, at the age of 28, and uh, soon my job was to uh, become in charge of CERN external networking. It was the network of connections between CERN and the outside world. So my job has been networking infrastructure, and amazingly, CERN is known for having invented the web. But CERN was also a key player in the infrastructure. I spent all my life working in the internet infrastructure, and when I took the job, CERN has two small connections: one to France and the other one to to the UK. And ten years later, CERN had become the major hub of the internet in Europe.
0: Clearly, Francois also saw the proposal for what became the web.
3: And I must confess that uh, this paper remained obscure for most of the people, including myself. He showed me the paper, and I must confess that they did not understand what it was all about. Ah, It's an amazing document because it starts on the first front page with a complex diagram with uh, clouds and bubbles and links. And this is exactly what we, as engineers, are said to never do. When you make a proposal, do not start with the nitty-gritty details of how it works. And you even don't know whether this diagram is about the functions, what the program should do, What people will do with it or the details of how it will work how it is done internally we even do not understand what it is and i reread it recently again once more over the past 30 years i read it many times and i still i do not i cannot (laughs) understand and figure out
0: the internet had existed for some time before the web and the first workable version of it was arpanet in the us but Accessing it was complicated to say the least. Different protocols, different computers, all complicated the picture. Then Ben Siegel came to CERN and began trying to simplify things. Yeah, there
4: were no standards at that time, so everyone had their own. We, CERN had a built in, starting around 74, they built their own homemade network system called CERNNET. There were proprietary standards, so each manufacturer had their own. And in general, they didn't want to share. Uh, They wanted to keep their customers captive. It wasn't until 1984 that um, I started with a new boss um, to look at the problem of what there we call distributed computing. And the first thing we needed was protocols that we could put on these very disparate systems all over the site, um, which could communicate together. So TCPIP was the second or third iteration of the ARPANET project to make a network which was redundant, robust, and would connect every sort of computer by being able to implement those protocols on every sort of computer that needed them. We were allowed to install these sinful protocols inside the site, but I had to sign a document saying I would never connect outside the site. So, and that situation remained until the end of 1988 and then uh, during that time I met Tim Berners-Lee who was a young, keen student with a job, an official job, to connect computers in, in a simpler way using something called Remote Procedure Call.
0: Remote procedure call enables you to access and request a service from a network computer. That added to TCPIP, and I was beginning to get an appreciation of the situation in which the idea for the web was born.
4: The real future, there's nobody foresaw. There's a famous uh, book called Black Swan, you may have heard of, Nicholas Taleb wrote it, about very rare... Uh, impossible to predict events which changed the course of history. And the web was a black swan. Nobody could could foresee it. And nobody from from the proposal that he wrote, which is itself, a, a by the way, intriguing, you could see the, the width, the breadth of his dream, but the practicality of it and the eventual success of it was impossible to predict. I remember he would say, Ben, we, we need to agree on a few simple things. And I would say to him, Tim, that." that they're not going to agree. The people don't want to share. IBM doesn't want to to agree standards with other people. And so on. This was already starting to change at that time. It was 1988, 89, and so on. But it was far from the world where we have open source, we have standards which apply to everybody, even Microsoft, for instance, nowadays. Um, so I would say, you know, they'll never agree. I had the same dream. We all had the same dream. We were working on protocols to try and connect people We wanted to connect the world, but why that particular system would do it um, and not another, uh, it was impossible to predict. It's hard to exaggerate how difficult that task was, that he could just say, well, we'll just agree on a few simple things and we'll do it. And he did it.
0: But just prior to this, over in America, Steve Jobs left Apple Computing and set up Next Computing, launching its first computer in 1988.
4: And one thing I did with Tim Berners-Lee was go to his boss, Mike Sendall, his group leader, actually, because his his immediate boss was Peggy Rimmer. Um, But his group leader was Mike Sendall, sadly deceased now, with the request to buy Tim a next computer. And we persuaded his boss quite easily, because this machine was absolutely ideal for prototyping a system like the web was going to be. It was particularly easy for some technical reasons. The problem was that next machines, like many other things, uh, were not on the official purchase list at CERN. But I happened to know an Italian physicist at another division who had bought a few.
0: So Ben brought one over to demonstrate its capabilities, hoping to skirt round the issue that this American machine was not on the official purchase list for CERN. Peggy Remmer takes up the story.
2: I thought, wow, that's something else, but we can't have one. (laughs) Mike, who was our group leader, so had the purse strings, so he could allocate resources. How could I say it? Quietly bought one of these, or ordered one of these, in April, I think it was, of 1990, and suggested that of all the people in our group who might evaluate it for performance, utility and so on, why not Tim? Wink, wink. Uh,
4: it was an expensive machine, like $10,000 at the time. Um, quite a small machine, but a very, very beautiful system. And we, Tim ordered that machine, in, or his boss ordered the machine in May of 1990. And um, it arrived in September. He had all the system in his head before that time. I mean, he sat down and he programmed this thing everything himself in three
2: months. And the next helped him to develop the code very rapidly, so he was able to get something going. And then, co- um, in conjunction with all of that, he had another colleague, Robert Kyle, who was an engineer, and who had a more clear idea, if I may say so, about how you do things like write a project request document. That, you know, Engineers are good at that. And Robert was, anyway, extremely enthusiastic about hypertext and a big Apple fan, and so on. So he went into collaboration with Tim. And together, because Tim's, even Tim's, the main 90 document was still rather incoherent, it had expanded its size, it wasn't any devastatingly clearer. I mean, he's it, it's, it's lovely, but. I guess around about six months of uh, what a person might be able to have, but Robert said, you know, we need two people who then earn that much money, and we need this, and we need that. Mm-hmm. So it was a few-page document, and it was the very first time the the phrase "World Wide Web" had been used. Tim's first uh, paper was called "A Project X." His second paper in May was called "Mesh," a project mesh. Mm-hmm. Well, these don't immediately but when it said worldwide web wait a minute this is this looks like something yeah. so they took that in November of 1990 so Tim had his next Robert Robert had come into the new division where we all where we all were and that a proposal gained a certain reluctant support if uh, you
4: like. Robert bought himself the next machine and the two of them then could could communicate and they started to to show the system around, first inside CERN, and then later um, a, a, a guy came from SLAC, uh, Stanford Linear Accelerator Centre, and turned him on, and uh, then it started to spread.
2: There was also a young uh, student from the UK, Nicola Pello, who was here as in some sort I don't think we call them interns, but anyway, she was a short-stay girl, and they got her... Because at the moment, till then, everything was running on this next. And there weren't that many nexts around the world, mm. although Tim and Robert were rushing around trying to sell this idea. But they got Nicola to, light it, to write something called a Line Browser, which could, from an ordinary terminal, by various fiddlings and gadgets and so on, get yourself linked up to a, to a web server, if you like, looking like a web server, and you could show that to your mum and dad and your best friends and everybody, and once that had happened, it was very clumsy, not at all convenient, but it convinced people, Mm -hmm. yes, I can sit in my office and see something in California, this is what he's been talking about, really, that was the next thing that moves things up a notch, if you like, Mm -hmm. some changes in languages, helping C was coming in and object-oriented attitude. All these little things were beginning to make it maybe possible. One difficulty
3: also was that at that time, how to say it diplomatically, Tim Berners-Lee was not always a very good communicator. He was speaking too fast, not necessarily going to the Asian shore, starting with often the details, either the details of the implementation, how it works which is not the first thing you expect when you present what you do to an audience, you start to say what you will get out of it, what you will gain, what are the advantages, what are the drawbacks, and not necessarily how it, how it, uh, it works. Uh, it was a mixture of details that unnecessarily uh, needed at that moment of the explanation, plus uh, some kind of vision, worldwide vision of where it could go, which was also a bit fuzzy. Yet, even though it was difficult to figure out that it was about what we know the web is today, there was this idea that there was something good behind. So the reaction was, let's let him doing it, or try to do it. And this is something that I have seen so often at CERN. To be honest, I have never seen, never seen, A project which is well-presented, well-proposed, well-documented, which is rejected. Sometimes minimal resources. Or at least people are allowed to work. Because something that is amazing, once at CERN, becoming a civil servant, I started to work 50, 55, 60 hours a week. And no one was forcing me. It was my choice. It was not a pressure, a vertical pressure coming from the top nor uh, horizontal pressure coming from people at the same level as me, no, in no way. This is because we were in that movement of all working in the same direction to make CERN a success because at any time we are are always working on a new generation of accelerators, we have deadlines and everyone, everyone wants that to be a success. And seeing that our hierarchy always supports us in novel ideas, even with limited or even no resources. So it was the spirit in which uh, the climate in which Berners-Lee started to develop.
0: Around this time, a young man from Paris called Jean-Francois Groff arrived at CERN as part of his French national service. Instead of military service, Jean-Francois came to CERN to work on the computer needs of LEP. Peggy Rimmer spotted that he was a bit misplaced on that role because much of the work had already been done and there was a talented young man going to waste. Working with Ben Siegel, Peggy managed to move Jean-Francois to become the first full-time person to work on the web with Tim and Robert
5: well I'm one of the few people who were here at the very beginning when I met Tim uh, on the recommendation of Ben Siegel he had just completed the, the web's prototype on on the next and he had a bunch of design papers and a lot of ideas of what he wanted to do I was immediately uh, taken by the opportunity it may be a bit immodest to say that but Tim told me hey you understand what I want to do and say yeah uh, because I was a telecom engineer, so I had the background for that. I was also a C programmer. I had translated the, the book, the reference book about C, the Cunningham and Richie. So, yes. uh, well, I helped him write basically the, 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 the World Wide Web code library, the generic code library that was the building blocks to all browsers and all servers in the early 90s. It was a great experience, and I think. We owe credit to Ben for, you know, smelling, okay, who's the right guy I could put in touch with Tim. Ben was a great connector. He was the one who introduced the internet at around the year before, and apparently that was politically a difficult decision as well. So, so he knew how to, you know, just like Peggy or Mike Zenzel, they knew how to make things happen without disturbing uh let's say official policy Mm. and then that library was extended by other people at cern actually uh after i had left and they did cgi they did the cern server they did css css was invented here Uh, few people know that Mm.
0: Uh, that's good it certainly is and some other things that people might not know is that jean francois was the first person to set up a web Consultancy, the first web consultant in the world, working to help a library in Copenhagen to set up their system on the web. And he also worked on the Cassini Huygens mission to Saturn. Much more from Jean-Francois later, but let's go back to Francois Flueckiger.
3: It was in 91, I was a uh, chairing a committee uh, called the HEPnet Requirements Committee, a committee in charge of defining what the requirements of the high-energy physics community were in terms of networking. What do we need? What do the physicists need for the future in terms of networking and communications? It was obvious to invite a team to come along and make a presentation to that team because this is where they would say, yes, we require it. We are the requirements committee. Yes, we require it or we do not require it. And I must confess that no one really understood what uh, Tim what w- w- was presenting. I met recently one of my old colleagues who attended that meeting, and he was still remembering that they just looked at them after the presentation and said, well, maybe this is great, but we don't understand what it is <laughs> and how it will, it will help us. There was a true need for having this way of exchanging information without having logging, but amazingly, no, no one had ever requested it. In this requirement committee, we knew that we had to have logins everywhere, and this was a, a pain we had to suffer. We were accustomed to it. And no one asked to remove this tyranny of logins. So we needed it desperately, but without having requested it, and without even understanding that it is what we wanted when Tim started to explain it to us. Mm. Um, Well, this is a property of many, um, I would say, many disruptive inventions that you do not know you need it, you do not request it, but once there, you cannot do without it
5: in the early days few people knew about the web so we had to actively promote it we started with physics conferences I remember driving all the way to the south of France for a physics conference and wiring their router so they can get a live demo of the web uh, in, in 92 so that was some active work there. Yeah. Uh, I went to Pisa as well and Robert went to places Tim went to places but then after a while, let's say in 92, requests were just flooding in. And people in the physics world had started to you know, bridge the existing data sources into the web. Let's say the Slack, for example, they had all the preprints papers. So then you had hundreds of physicists were looking at their papers through the web. So then they inquired about, hey, can we can we use this as well? So it, it really grew organically, so we had a lot of requests yeah, by93. By but of course when the Americans came around with NTSA, uh, they, they had the resources. They just wanted to do it. Right? And that's why after a couple of years, you know Tim I think regretfully left CERN and went to MIT because MIT said we'll give you all the resources you need. Yeah. And like all the resources you need was not a lot. but you can redo history right now. Yeah. Yeah. CERN was great in terms of being a place where the environment and needs of the physicists and the IT people and the experiments people uh, were well matched by, by the web. So it, it did fill a need for the physics community mm. and you know it, it was a great place for this idea to emerge and to grow. We can credit CERN for being a fantastic incubator for the web, and I hear from a lot of for a lot of other technologies like for the accelerators, you know a bunch of innovations came out of CERN. so that's cool. Yeah. You no hard feelings towards CERN at all, yeah. even though I-, I have to say and everybody admits it today, yeah, we couldn't give you any support, but the very existence of this CERN community was, was fantastic.
3: So to me, it became clear in 93, a bit later than some, but in 93, it became clear that it would be a, a, a worldwide success, or I would say by 92, 93. Personally, there was an event I, I remember very well. It was in the spring 93, and Timon Lee uh, showed up in my office and said, François, I know you are going to this internet conference, the INET 93 in San Francisco, in August. Uh, I am due to present the web there, but you know, uh, I have too much to do, uh, so I cannot go. Can you go uh, in place of me and replace me at the conference? This was one of Tim's way of working. His priority was to develop and develop fast. And he knew it was a sort of phrase because this idea of hypertext and hyperlinks were floating around everywhere, so he wanted to move fast and to keep developing. So I said, yes, I go there. I'm one of the organizers, so uh, yes, I will uh, go. And he came back with a pile of uh, handwritten slides for me to show at the conference. I arrived at the conference, and I noted that people were starting to say, well, uh, you know, there will be a presentation of the web, and they started to show me. And the organizers had not changed the name, probably because they wanted Tim's name to remain on the list of speakers. So people started to say, oh, this is the guy who will speak of the web. Ah, he's Tim Bernersley. I said, no, no, I'm not Tim. But people started to, when they met me in the corridors, to call me, hey, Tim, Tim, can we have an interview? No, no, I'm not Tim, sorry. <laughs> And uh, I remember very well uh, my presentation uh, was in the main room at 2. I arrived 25 minutes in advance, to be sure, and then I could not get into the room. I could not enter the room because it was crowded, people staying outside. I, tra- I managed to get in, all the seats were occupied, and there were about a thousand, more than 1,000 people in the room. Then I realized that here in the States... The, the, this movement toward the web would not stop. Uh,
5: then Paolo Palazzi came around. Paolo, he had a group looking at uh, programming techniques, advanced programming techniques, which in the early 90s meant hey, object-oriented programming and software components. So he had a budget for that, so he was able to hire people when he believed that the web was something. So Paolo actually hired a bunch of people who, who did all that work for security. You know, Philippe did the early versions of HTTPS. Extremely important work. Paul Conley did uh, CSS, I believe. Ariel Louotonen he wrote HTTPD. He invented the server APIs. Uh, great guys.
3: There are many reasons why uh, the web has been so successful. Think global at the inception. From the very beginning, Tim berners had the, this idea that he wanted something not restricted to, to CERN, not restricted to the high-energy physics community, which is bigger than CERN, not restricted to the scientific community, but he was tar- targeting the world. Even from the inception, he called this system World Wide Web. He did put no limit at all in the design. He wanted something absolutely generic and general. It was clear for us from the very beginning, though it was not clear that it would be a worldwide success in Norway. So uh, when we saw the first demonstration, they were not working very well. Tim often, when showing the web or presenting it. Uh, He was sometimes lost in demos that never worked. I remember a conference in Innsbruck, one of the major uh, internet conferences in Europe that took place in Austria. I had asked him to come and to to present the web, and uh, he was trying to do an experiment or a demonstration before the audience that did not work, and people, after a few minutes, started to leave the room because it was not working. And so it took some time for us to realise that this would be a worldwide success, in addition to being called worldwide Web.
0: So after that presentation in San Francisco in 1993... With the development of the web galloping along, François Flueckiger took over from Tim Berners-Lee at CERN.
3: Yeah, it turned out that uh, one year later, in 94, uh, Tim Berners-Lee decided to move to the MIT in the course of the summer 94. And um, by the end of June, I was asked to take over his technical team at CERN because uh, there were about 10 engineers working on the web here. And the idea was to, to have two teams working on the development on the web, one at CERN and the other one in the, in the, at the MIT. Well, my first job, as, uh, in addition to my user job, my first job as manager of the technical team was to organize a release of a new version, the long-awaited version free of the web software, which was a major uh, new version. And then uh, I look at what was the Status of the web software in terms of law and in terms of intellectual property. And I remember something had been done. I went to the CERN legal service to check. Yes, yes, it was true 18 months before CERN has decided to put the web software into the public domain. It was a great idea, a good idea, because the idea was, look, we want everyone to use it. So we put it in the public domain. It belongs to everyone, to the, to the public. It was, on the principle, a good idea, but a rather risky decision. Because by definition, public domain means relinquishing the intellectual property. By so doing, Sir has said, look, we want everyone to, to to use the web. It was fully philanthropic, the right thing to do. And this object, this web software, it." no longer belongs to us. Everyone can use it. You know, it it, it, belong, it belongs to no one. Please use it. Then, for 18 months, we did run the risk that someone said, someone, a company, haha, it belongs to no one. Good. Now, we take it. We correct a couple of bugs. And it belongs to us. And we deny to you, to you too, to everyone the right to use it freely. This is called appropriation of public domain software. So, we decided to release this version 3 as open source, and not in the public domain. It means that we did, with this version 3, recover intellectual property rights. We said, look, this CERN software, it still belongs to CERN. It is our software. So no one can take it, change it, and deny others to use it freely. This is the protection. We did that for the protection, but we give to you, to you, to you, to everyone, irrespective of who you are, where you are, the perpetual and irrevocable right to use it, modify it, or make der- der- derivative products as you wish. This is the spirit of open source. You protect, no one can take it, but you give to anyone the right to use it or to improve it, to modify it. But if we reflect a bit, we had a sort of window of 18 months when, in fact, some companies may have taken the way out of the public domain and turned the public domain software into a proprietary software. That, then there would probably not be the web or not the web as we know it today.
0: I don't think I used the web until... At least 1997, maybe later, when it looked very different to how it did in those early days.
3: I remember at that time, it was not something as we see today. First of all, there was no graphical interface. We were all working on simple dumb terminals. And the way in which the links were noted, there was no, sp- no color. We had just one color Type of uh, screens uh, with a single type of characters. And uh, the way in which a link was indicated was as a sort of footnote after a word. You had a word and a sort of uh, uh, bracket, uh, one, two, three, whatever, uh, bracket. And you have to type to connect. You could not click because we have no mice at that time. The only possibility was to type a sort of a complicated string of character control, blah, blah. Then the number, we, three, four, uh, two, return, and you were connected to the link. When I saw that the first time in 91 I realized at only at that time what he had in mind. Uh, this concept of uh, hypertext and hyperlink. The term existed, we knew what it was. But until I saw, I started to use this first version of the first team browser, I didn't really realize the the potential.
5: I I got to appreciate the power of the internet because it was 91 and I was very often working off hours for the web. So I used to go home at 5 or 6 p.m. after my regular work and then after dinner I would come back to CERN and maybe from you know, 9 p.m. to 3 in the morning I would go hacking on the web. But hey, something to show the next day and it was very exciting. So when I drove from saint to here I was listening to the radio in my car and there was the birth of, a, of a, a 24-hour news radio called France Info which was giving us news and there was CNN and TV, but we didn't get CNN. We saw it when we traveled. But France F.O. was the same style, okay? We did the 24-hour news with every 15 minutes, bang, 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 this was happening in the world. What was happening in the world in ninety-one was the Gulf War, right? Iraq had invaded, invaded Kuwait, and you know, that was pretty bad, and then the U.S. decided we're going to kick out the Iraqi out of Kuwait, and let's see what we do next. So we listened to the news, on the radio, and it told one story. And we came online, we didn't have the web, but we had Usenet News, which was a, a forum system where people talked about all kinds of things. And we, had, we read a different story. You know, there was a news group called altnews.dezertstorm, and people were reporting from the ground about what was going on. So you didn't hear only, the, only one side of the story. And, well, I learned a lot about how news are manufactured for the public. Today we still hear about fake news and yeah, it's not new. Uh, So that was very uh, um, eye-opening for me as a young man.
3: The original idea of Team was uh, that with the BEP people would not remain only consumer of information and knowledge, but also producer of information and knowledge. And amazingly, maybe the first brothers were Brothers editors. You could, with the same piece of software, the same object, view a page and create a page. What we had not foreseen, however, sadly, and maybe we didn't want to foresee, we knew that may happen, but we, we didn't want to see it, was that actually today people are producing content. But by large, the majority of the content produced is not about knowledge, it's not about even information, it's for people to talk about themselves. Me, me, me. Where I am, how I look like, this is not, uh, this is not the Eiffel Towers. is me with the Eiffel, Eiffel Tower. Uh, what I do, where I am, who I am, my videos, my, my, my. We had not foreseen, or we didn't want to foresee that the web would become an instrument for egocentrism and narcissism. This is something that had not been uh, foreseen. Electronic commerce, uh, video over the internet, all that had been foreseen already in 1994. What had not been foreseen was the social networks. No one had seen them coming and the interest by, by, the, by the youngest, the addiction uh, to, the, to the youngest. And uh, of course, all the negatives that goes with, uh, with them and with the, the web and the internet as it is today. So, of course, uh, fake news, uh, harassment. Digital crowds, hates, all these negatives that are not due to the web. The web is not the cause. The web had been an amplifier of some, something that comes from far, maybe 30, 40 years. We started to see. So I, we believe, I believe that the web has been a sort of uh, accelerated amplifier of, uh, of a movement which uh, includes uh, creationism. Here we are at the the place where we start to understand the first nanoseconds of the Big Bang. So it's not a question of believing that our universe was created 8,000 years ago only. It's a question of knowledge. So the fact that we see now notions like knowledge and beliefs being intermingled, that in some leading countries the leaders place knowledges. I believe, I don't believe that there was a global warm-up. I'm mixing beliefs and what knowledge is. This idea that everything is at the same level. I am a teacher. I teach you two plus two is four. We see more and more. I exaggerate a bit, but more and more, pupils telling us, haha, oh, yeah, this is your opinion. My opinion that is three. And you cannot contest my opinion. This is my right. I have the right. To you cannot impose me thinking. You, I am a I am pupil. You are the professor, yes. But believe me, I am my, this is my right to say that two plus two is not four. Uh, you cannot contest that. So this means, and you may you may." By that, you know, oh, well, this, is, this pupil is quite clever, he's smart, This is why not? This is, he has the right, after all. What it means? It means that this is forgetting about three thousands of thinking, the philosophy, try to organize and think what, what uh, the ideas can be, putting them in a, sort of, in a sort of continuum, when at what end you have the beliefs, and their systems of beliefs and rituals, and religions, and at the other extreme, we have knowledge, which is a result of an experiment or a reasoning. And somewhere in between, we have the opinions, where which are some kind of beliefs, but based on some kind of experiment. But we know it's only an opinion. And uh, Kant spent his life plotting on this axis the various kind of ideas we have, and all that now is intermingled—a belief. Uh, that uh, there is no warm-up, it's put at the same level that the knowledge Ages. And uh, the the web
2: uh, has been an amplifier of these. We were not thinking about booking cinema tickets or or somebody, you know, wanting to send a photograph of their girlfriend to her boyfriend or something like that. They, we were not thinking. Never in a million years, I was not. It stayed rather elitist, if you, I may use that word, for quite a few years I would say half a dozen maybe five or six years the early days and only slowly and then hugely did it become everyone's dream and delight and um, where are we now well of course it's a, it's got as many bad uses as good uses now but I do feel and I think this is true of many things the press quite naturally I think Tells you about the bad things. It's like, I don't know if you remember Sparrow Anu, who I think was in maybe Reagan's American government. Anyway, he was some American guy in the administration. And he tried to pass a law saying that to make it uh, illegal to print bad news in the newspaper because it depressed everybody. <laughs> and I thought, well, if we don't left, there wouldn't be newspapers. He didn't get it through Congress or whatever. But it was a thought. Yeah. And it is true that it, bad news and nasty stuff is more interesting to the human soul and mind than just how everything is lovely. I fear that we've almost lost sight of, of the fantastic good stuff that I mean, most of us, at least I. My whole life is now just quietly done through the web. You know, I, I paid some bills this morning, I, I booked an attic a couple of weeks ago, that sort of thing. And I also can do things that I couldn't have done like paying all my bills. I, you know, I can't rush to England and pay a bill there and then rush back and pay a bill here and stuff like that. But all those sort of small things which add up to a huge change in the way we can live, um, and now it seem they seem almost inconsequential. We take them for granted. We don't think about how it would be. And then, of course, try as Tim might, you can't stop governments and corporations and stuff from behaving badly. I mean, that's what can you do if there's money involved which of course tim always made sure that at its basic beginnings there was no money involved because money is the root as you know of all dreadful things and we can see it now whenever there's money something eventually goes wrong and also it's much easier to be nasty to someone On when you're typing on a a smartphone, than if you're sitting looking in their eyes, and so it's even given rein to people's nastiness, and that I think we see all of the time, everywhere. Mm -hmm. People say right such amazing things to people that they wouldn't have ever dreamed of saying, and probably still wouldn't be able to say. But they can say, oh, you know, I'll kill your child or your husband should uh, die of some fiendish disease. I mean, you can can write that down. It's astonishing. Yeah. But they do, Yeah. sadly. And uh, I can't blame Tim for that. No. (laughs) No. And... um, you can't blame the web for it,
0: really. No.
2: No, as Tim did say, the guy who invented paper, don't blame him for (laughs) what people write on it. Yeah. And I think that's correct. But it's sad. And I fear with all the troubles we have in the world, non-web, I mean, political troubles, climate troubles, and so on, I fear we won't have the time or the luxury to evolve quickly enough to, if you like, keep up with the uh, developing ab- abilities that this web has given to us. We're we're too immature, evolutionary-wise, to know how to use it to our own truly ben- total benefit. We, we're not there. I know Tim is very um, just... Um, as unhappy as we all are that some things came to what they've come to. Yeah. And you know, he struggles all the time to try to fix all these things. He's got his first his open data stuff, which was fantastic, then the foundation and now solid and he tries. But yeah. you know, he's the voice crying in the wilderness. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Everything people invent or think of they manage. Somebody manages to turn it into a horror.
3: What we always predicted was what we call profiling. I wrote that in 94, the servers will try and see what we do, try and follow our activities, and did try and deduce for that the profiles of people, believing that they know who they are. And now this is true that there are computers who believe they know who I am. I even don't know myself who I am, but they believe I don't know even myself. I'm not sure what I like and dislike, but they believe that they didn't know what I like. So this profiling was already foreseen at that time with, with the, the negatives, which is a sort of impoverishment of the cultural spectrum of the people because by being only proposed what the servers believe you like, you reduce drastically the chance of impromptu discoveries. There have been Sociological studies made at the time where there was only one program on the TV screens. And it has been demonstrated by the impromptu discoveries, because there is only no single program and you have no choice, and sometimes there is opera, you believe you hate opera, but you realize that you don't necessarily hate that much opera. But if you have a choice, too much choice, you may go to listen to an opera on the TV. And uh, excessive customization, which is good, in a sense, because choice is good, choice is freedom, uh, sows the seed of this impoverishment of the spectrum of interest and reduces drastically the chances of impromptu discoveries. We wanted to connect everybody. And obviously, as we were idealists,
4: we we hoped we'd do a lot of good. None of us wanted the dark internet to come. None of us wanted the fact that 98% of email on the internet is spam and needs to be filtered out. So I still think that the internet and the web has done a lot more good than evil, but the evil aspects of it need to be attacked. It's not the technology that's evil, it's the people. One bad apple can corrupt the barrel, which it it does. Um, So the social aspects of this are very troubling. Again, you only need one uh, bad president and you're delayed another four years or eight years, you're sent back, backwards. A lot of us, including Tim himself, are concerned about it. Uh, I'm disappointed um, in some measure about the the way things are going. I always used to be optimistic, uh, but I don't uh, uh, think I'm optimistic anymore
3: about the the long-term future of humanity. The evolution of humankind and societies progressively improves and ramps up slowly. It took 80,000 years for humankind to start getting rid of slavery. The position of women in society is improving. So I believe this is ramping up, but not linearly. We waves up and down and up and down. It is sad that uh, most of my life were in the sort of going down phase, I think, in terms of consciousness and building of knowledge. And the web has been an accelerator in that down phase. But I believe that there will be a change of the curve, and again, again, uh, this obscurantism will start to, to regress, and progressively people will improve their conscience that knowledge is better than beliefs. And at that point, I hope that the web will be an accelerator and amplifier of uh, this, uh, this phase in these oscillations. Mm.
0: And Jean Francois Groff was clear when I asked him what he thought the best use of the web was Wikipedia. It's fantastic. <laughs> it is absolutely amazing. it was
5: mocked, remember? When it came around, I mean, it started in 2001, but it, it came onto the radar of ordinary people in 2005, five, six. They took so much abuse, right? And this thing is run entirely by anonymous volunteers. It runs on a set of rules on how to contribute, and it's totally self-governed in a distributed fashion. And it works. And it produces stuff that is very up to date at least as good as the mainstream encyclopedias but for specialist subjects it's even better because the generic encyclopedia doesn't have the breadth of interest well the goal of Wikipedia is hey bring all the knowledge of the world to everybody in every language they're pretty close you know I think it's it has 150 languages now that's that's the closest to what we were trying to achieve actually
0: the Nobel laureate Jacques Monod says that the coming of life is a result of necessity and chance. 30 years ago at CERN, these two things combined, and Tim Berners-Lee provided the spark that became the World Wide Web. It changed the world in so many ways, and it's a fascinating topic which you can explore further over on physicsworld.com. But this is the final episode of our mini-series celebrating 30 years of physics world, and I can think of no better way to cap it off than celebrating something else which is 30 years old this month. Peggy Rimmer watched it all unfold.
2: It's never been anything like it. Mm -hmm. Not at all. And uh, the fact that all the technologies were coming, coalescing at that time in that period, that made everything possible.
3: Physics World